1: A warm welcome to First Move this Wednesday. Fantastic to be with you as always. And here's a look at what's coming up this hour, including delicate diplomatic dancing in China and the U.S. French President Emmanuel Macron in Beijing to apply some European-style pressure to Xi Jinping over Ukraine. Meanwhile, in California, Taiwan's president set to meet with U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. A meeting the White House calls, quote, private and unofficial, and Beijing calls, quote, sneaky plus.
2: With a local failed district attorney charging a former president of the United States for the first time in history on a
1: basis that every single pundit and legal analyst said there is no case, there's no case. Former U.S. President Donald Trump defiant after his arrest in New York, he pleaded not guilty to all 34 criminal charges tied to falsifying business records. Just how strong is the case and how much does it really matter? We'll discuss later in the show a similar mood, though, of uncertainty, I think, over Wall Street at this moment. U.S. futures tilting slightly to the downside after the latest jobs Data from ADP, private employers, adding 145,000 jobs last month. That's actually well below most estimates. Wall Street retreated Tuesday after job openings in February hit their lowest since 2021, a sign that firms are less eager to hire and could point to further signs of slowdown, all tied, of course, to the banking sector volatility that we saw and a bit more cautiousness from employers, which you would expect. In the meantime, a mixed bag for markets over in Asia, with Japan's Nikkei slipping 1.7%. Construction and sentiment, sen, cement excuse me, stocks under pressure over there. While over in Korea, the KOSPI gained over half a percent. Liquidity, also likely a factor with both Hong Kong and Shanghai, closed for a holiday. Certainly no holidays here on First Move, though, and we begin here in New York. It was a historic day as Donald Trump pleaded not guilty in a Manhattan courtroom Tuesday. The 34 charges stem from a hush money payment Trump allegedly made to adult film star Stormy Daniels. Prosecutors say he was at the center of a scheme to suppress damaging information about him before the 2016 presidential election. Paula Reid has more.
3: According to the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, former President Donald Trump was at the center of an alleged catch-and-kill scheme to suppress negative stories about him in order to influence the 2016 presidential election and to benefit his electoral prospects. Trump appeared in a New York courtroom on Tuesday and pleaded not guilty to 34 felony counts of falsifying business records. Speaking at Mar-a-Lago Tuesday night, he lashed out at the district attorney, the judge in the case, and the indictment itself.
2: And I never thought anything like this could happen in America. Never thought it could happen. The only crime that I have committed is to fearlessly defend our nation from those who seek
3: to destroy it. According to Manhattan prosecutors, the alleged scheme involved Trump, his former personal attorney Michael Cohen, and the then head of American Media Incorporated, David Pecker. During an August 2015 meeting at Trump Tower, Pecker said he would act as the eyes and ears of the campaign by alerting Cohen to negative stories about Trump, according to court
4: documents. I found the doc- the document actually quite detailed. Uh, I mean, the, it is a speaking indictment, and it has uh, quite a bit of detail about the history, and laid out the facts underlying then the various counts that are listed.
3: Before the 2016 presidential election, payments were made to at least three individuals to suppress their negative stories involving Trump, including alleged affairs with adult film star Stormy Daniels and Playboy model Karen McDougal, according to court documents. Trump denies both affairs.
5: These are felony crimes in New York State, no matter who you are.
3: Cohen has also pleaded guilty to federal crimes pertaining to this indictment.
5: I will continue to speak truth to power. I will continue to provide uh, transparency to the American people. It's amazing how, once again, Donald is trying to shift all
3: of the blame, which he's so good at. It's always somebody else's fault. Trump's lawyers vowing to fight the charges.
6: A motion to dismiss is coming on several grounds. prosecutorial misconduct, selective prosecution for sure will be two of them. Legal insufficiency is another one.
1: Now, as we mentioned, the French president is in Beijing, marking the start of a three-day visit to China. Emmanuel Macron will be joined by the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen. He will meet his Chinese counterpart, Xi Jinping, on Thursday. President Macron is expected to urge President Xi to help facilitate an end to the war in Ukraine. Meanwhile, Beijing says it's resolutely opposes, quote, today's meeting between Taiwan's president and the U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. The visit has already drawn warnings and condemnation from China. President Tsai ing wen arrived in Los Angeles earlier. Selina Wang joins us now from Beijing. Selina, let's talk about President Emmanuel Macron. I was actually looking at the trade data because I believe he's taken a business contingent with him too. And $1.1 billion worth of daily trade between the EU and China argues there's leverage and interest to protect on both sides. What do we expect to come from this three-day visit? Yeah, that is a staggering number, Julie. And it really points to the fact
6: that, yes, a big part of this meeting, as Macron has been telegraphing for months, is to try and push China to do more in resolving the conflict in Ukraine. But as you say, economic interests here are key. Macron, he's traveling with a delegation of about 50 business leaders. And the backdrop here is that all EU leaders are trying to figure out how to navigate this relationship with China. They're worried about China's increasingly aggressive foreign policy, about Beijing's close ties to Moscow, but China is also a key trading partner, as that number points to. Now, for Beijing, this meeting is a chance to also boost Xi Jinping's image as this global statesman, and it is also helping China to reconnect with the world and revive its economy after three years of damaging COVID restrictions. They need positive relations with these major trading partners. Now, Macron is in Beijing, along with European Commission Chief Ursula von der Leyen. Both of them have recently spoken to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Von der Leyen has also pledged that Ukraine would be an important topic of meetings But this visit, it's also drawing a lot of skepticism. Lithuania's Ministry of Foreign Affairs urged caution in a series of tweets, writing, quote, We should remember that attempts to contain Russia by offering economic partnership failed. Putin was, in fact, emboldened by our flexibility, not persuaded. Similar tactics would also embolden China. Let's not make the same mistake twice. Now, remember, throughout all of this, Beijing has claimed neutrality when it comes to Ukraine, but China has still refused to condemn the invasion or even to call it an invasion. Instead, China has been bolstering ties with Russia. We're not too far off from when Xi Jinping made that trip to Russia to meet with Putin, where they reaffirmed their partnership on a whole host of issues. Julia.
1: Yes, I guess one could argue that um, backing away from diplomacy in light of that visit by Xi Jinping to Moscow is not the uh, uh, is not the way forward either. But um, a delicate balance, certainly. Um, and speaking of delicate balances, Selina, I saw a Taiwan's Foreign Affairs Ministry said criticism of the president's trip to the United States, um, which has never controlled Taiwan, has become increasingly absurd. So criticizing China in in that manner. Uh, I saw the consulate also in LA saying that Xi is putting on a political show. How is all this being covered where you are? Well, no surprise here.
6: We're seeing the standard harsh rhetoric that China is promising to fight back against this meeting and that they see this meeting as a violation of its sovereignty. Washington has been trying to downplay this meeting as part of a stopover on Tsai's way back to Taiwan. But not surprisingly, Beijing does not see it that way because remember, Beijing sees Taiwan as a breakaway province that's part of its territory, so it is extremely against it, has strong opposition to any types of these high-level meetings between Taiwan's leaders and American leaders. Now, remember when Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan last summer, China responded with these unprecedented military drills that simulated a blockade around the island. Now, the reaction may be more muted this time, and so far we haven't seen any strong military response because these leaders are meeting on American soil. They're not meeting in Taiwan. But of course, that's not going to stop the angry rhetoric. And remember, every day already, Taiwan is dealing with Chinese fighter jets around its skies and military ships sailing off its coast. We have seen Beijing significantly up its intimidation of the island as these unofficial ties between Taiwan and the U.S. have been strengthening. But there are also reasons for Xi Jinping to hold back a little bit this time. As we were talking about earlier, he's trying to position himself as this global statesman, a potential peacemaker in Ukraine. Plus, war games over Taiwan would overshadow this meeting between French President Emmanuel Macron and Xi Jinping and China's leaders in Beijing. And there's also another symbolic meeting I wanna point out that's taking place in China while Taiwan's leader is on American soil. So Taiwan's former president, Ma ying jeou is currently touring China. This is the first ever visit to China by a current or former Taiwanese leader. And this trip is symbolic because it really reflects a split inside Taiwan about what is the best way to deal with the threat from China is the best way forward to have better relations with their more hostile neighbor or is the way forward to have better relations with a powerful, powerful leader in across the Pacific that could, in the meantime, anger its hostile neighbor, Julia.
1: Yeah. And that balancing act tying the two stories here, which and what is the best form of diplomacy? Uh, to defuse tensions. Selina Wang, thank you so much for that. Now, that visit leaves the White House with another delicate balancing act with Beijing. It's so far declining to say whether it supports the meeting. Lauren Fox is in Washington for us. Um, again, once again being cautious, Lauren, but I just wonder behind the scenes whether this trip is seen as being less provocative, perhaps, than Nancy Pelosi's trip in August of last year to Taiwan itself.
7: Well, certainly that could be a factor. The expectation, of course, today that this meeting is happening in California at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library. It is a meeting with heavy in symbolism for Kevin McCarthy, the House Speaker, who has made a central tenet of his speakership about shoring up that U.S. relationship with China and ensuring that the U.S. does not get behind either in economic growth or in terms of its own national security with regard to China. The meeting today, of course, coming with not just Kevin McCarthy going out on a limb and being a Republican meeting with the Taiwan president, but instead that this is a bipartisan meeting. You know, I was told from a source familiar with McCarthy's thinking that he thought it was really important to include Democrats in this forum today out in California. Peter Aguilar, who is a member of the Democratic leadership, will be in California at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library for this meeting. But Kevin McCarthy sees this meeting as important and something that, wouldn't be deterred, even given Beijing's strong response and condemnation of this meeting. Yes,
1: one of the few things that uh, politicians of both sides can agree on a a stronger stance, and increasingly so, it seems, against China. Lauren, great to have you with us. Thank you. Lauren Fox there. And Ukraine's President Zelensky has received the oldest and highest award Poland bestows. The Polish president, Andrzej Duda, says the order of the White Eagle is only given to outstanding individuals. President Zelensky is on a state visit with the First Lady Elena. Poland has been a key ally to Ukraine following Russia's invasion, and the trip will be an opportunity for the two leaders to strengthen that alliance further. David McKenzie joins us now from Kyiv. President Zelensky said that the Polish people have stood shoulder to shoulder with Ukrainians. It's not just about defensive support, but also welcoming in an estimated, I believe, a million, one million displaced Ukrainians too.
8: Julia, that's right. If you cast your mind back to the start of this war and all of those Ukrainians fleeing the rocket attacks and missile attacks here into Kiev and across the country, many of them went to, of course, Poland on the western border. And it was that welcoming nature of the Polish people, as well as the ongoing support, both militarily and financially from Poland that Zelensky, President Zelensky highlighted in his meeting with the Polish president. Uh, the discussion, though, did, of course, turn to the uh, war and the state of the war. Interestingly, uh, President Zelensky did say that they would potentially consider withdrawing troops from the highly contested uh, city of Bakhmut in the east should those troops uh, be encircled fully by Russian and private military contracting uh, forces. He said it depends, of course, on the amount of ammunition and support they are getting. But that is, uh, if not an admission, certainly a reality check from the president of how the combat is going on in the eastern part of the country. But I think it is a significant moment that he was there uh, or is there with the First Lady in this very um, choreographed state visit uh, in Warsaw.
1: Yes, and the first time he's stayed there, having transitioned through Poland, of course, a number of times to to visit other countries in the world. Um, David, as you mentioned, let's bring it back to to the conflict. And there's questions once again being raised about Russia's ability to replenish its forces with military trained um, soldiers. What do we know about the concerns on this?
8: Well, this is coming from a Western official speaking to CNN. They say that that Russia might need at least uh, up to 400,000 soldiers, not just for the ongoing conflict, but also potentially to have placed at the border with the expanded NATO, which now, of course, includes Finland. Uh, Russia has been mobilizing uh, troops from the general population. Uh, that official and those officials speaking to CNN said they are it's unclear whether the Russians can manage another mobilization and what the reaction would be amongst the Russian people. It is worth noting at the beginning of this war though uh, the Ukrainian soldiers outnumbered the individual soldiers from Russia fighting because of the impact of the war and the mobilization by Russians for this conflict. That has, if not equaled out, certainly it's less of a lopsided nature of this fight. You've also had the Ukrainian military complaining repeatedly, as I noted earlier, about uh, ammunition coming into country, in the country, particularly artillery shells. So it's unclear what impact this assessment has on the actual day-to-day fighting, but it's certainly a notable bit of information that may bear out in the next two months. Julia? Yeah, but a vital point that you make
1: that this is actually not just about the battlefield, it's about the fact that the border with NATO just doubled as a result of Finland's um, accession that we were discussing yesterday. Hmm. David McKenzie, thank you so much for that. To Jerusalem now. Israeli police stormed the Al-Aqsa Mosque, arresting more than 350 people. Videos posted on social media appear to show Israeli officers attacking some of the people inside. The police say officers entered the holy site after use with fireworks, sticks and stones barricaded themselves inside. Since the clashes, Israeli defense forces say 10 rockets were fired from Gaza towards Israel. The IDF retaliated, saying they struck Hamas targets in Gaza. Hadis Gold joins us now from Tel Aviv. Hadis, what what do we know about the events that led up to the entry of the mosque and, and what efforts were made to verbally negotiate with the individuals inside.
9: Yeah, Julie, I mean, tensions have been high now for some time, as we've been reporting, and especially now as it's the holy month of Ramadan and Passover, Jewish holiday Passover actually be- begins tonight in just a few hours. The tensions were even extra high. Now, there have been several nights now where Israeli police say youths have been barricading themselves in the mosque overnight. Now, that is traditional to stay in the mosques overnight for prayers. But part of what has prompted this is calls by Jewish extremists who wanted to go up to the Al Aqsa Mosque compound, which is the Third holiest site to Muslims, but it's also known as Temple Mount to the Jews and it's the holiest site in Judaism. And there have been calls by Jewish extremists for Jews to go up to the site. Some of them have even talked about bringing goats to engage in some sort of very, very ancient ritual sacrifice that is no longer engaged in today. So there were calls for people to stay in the mosque to essentially protect and defend it. Now, Israeli police say that they had tried to go in and verbally get them to leave the mosque. And now they say that what they had to do is overnight, when these people were not leaving, they entered the mosque and we've seen videos now of them entering with their riot shields up uh we see fireworks being fired at them the police responded with uh, stun grenades and rubber bullets and then we also see them arresting they say arrest they arrested more than 350 people we see them in some videos even seemingly beating some people inside of the mosque and arresting them and laying them on the floor of the mosque now to give you some context of course there's a very sensitive and delicate status quo that governs what happens at the holy sites and Israeli police even stepping foot into the mosque would be seen as a violation of that and also to be very would be very very offensive and provocative to many Muslims and then not only stepping in but then arresting and engaging violently as they did no matter what else was going on there and there's also of course now damage to the mosque that is seen as even more incredibly provocative and offensive and condemnations have been raining down across the Arab and Muslim world from Jordan and Egypt and Saudi Arabia we're also now hearing from the UN uh, special coordinator for Middle East peace he's saying that he's appalled by the images of the violence and disturbed by the apparent beatings he's Says of Palestinians by Israeli security forces. He says he also strongly rejects the stockpiling and use of fireworks and rocks by Palestinians inside the mosque. Now, the Israeli government is defending what the police did. The Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu saying that Israel is committed to maintaining freedom of worship and access to all religions, saying they will not allow what he called violent extremists to change this. And then shortly after these events took place overnight, of course, what happens in Jerusalem doesn't stay in Jerusalem because rockets were fired from Gaza into Israel. Hamas saying that they would not allow such provocations to go unanswered. Now, there was no injuries reported by those rockets, although one fell on a factory with uh, workers inside. And the Israeli military responded with airstrikes and what they said were Hamas targets, but also no injuries reported on either side. Now, the question is, of course, what will happen tonight? What will happen next? What will happen on Friday with Friday prayers? Uh, There are hopes, of course, that things will be calm, but there's no guarantees. And the situation right now is very tense. It's, It's calm, but it's very intense. And we also have to keep in mind, of what that could mean for not only Jerusalem, but also the occupied West Bank and, of course, Gaza. Julia?
1: Yeah, we wait and see. Had us gold in Tel Aviv for us there. Thank you. OK, coming up here on First Move, why have one when you can have three? I'm not talking about the car, sadly. I'm talking about electric motors. And we're full speed ahead at the New York Auto Show with Lamborghini's new hybrid. Stay with us. back for the first time in U.S. history. A former president has been arrested and charged with a crime. Donald Trump pleaded not guilty to 34 charges of falsifying business records in a New York courtroom on Tuesday. His lawyers say they plan to, quote, fight it hard. Just to give you a sense of what's coming up, they have until August 8th to file any motions. The prosecution then must respond by mid-September of this year. And then the next in-person hearing is scheduled for December 4th. Now, after his historic day in court, the former president returned to Florida and accused the Manhattan district attorney of targeting him politically.
2: This fake case was brought only to interfere with the upcoming 2024 election, and it should be dropped immediately, immediately. I have a Trump-hating judge with a Trump-hating wife and
1: family. They can't beat us at the ballot box, so they try and beat us through the law And joining us now is CNN legal analyst, Ellie Honig. He's also the former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. He also served as federal prosecutor with current Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, who has brought those 34 charges forward. Ellie, great to have you with us. I think the disclaimer on my side rather than on your side, just so that we understand um, your relationship, which I think is important too. Um, Forget the legal dramas. What about what Donald Trump said last night about the judge in this case his wife and his daughter
2: completely inappropriate and mm. dangerous in fact julia look a person is entitled here in the United States under our Constitution to criticize prosecutors and judges. I wouldn't advise it if you're a criminal defendant, but you're certainly allowed to do that. But there is a line that gets crossed where the rhetoric is dangerous, where it's likely to incite people to commit acts of violence. And this is not merely hypothetical in Donald Trump's case. His rhetoric was certainly a contributing factor, at least to January 6th. And if you remember, when Trump's home at Mar-a-Lago was searched by the FBI lawfully back in August. His rhetoric inspired somebody to try to storm an FBI office in Ohio, and that person was shot and killed. So there's real concern here. As you say, I am friendly with and former colleagues with Alvin Bragg. I'm concerned for him and his family. I have criticized the substance of the indictment, which I will continue to do (laughs) regardless of the friendship, but these attacks are absolutely over the line and they're dangerous.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think we have to separate that from, from broader questions, I think, to your point about um, perhaps the relevance of this, the importance of this and the timing, which I think opens everybody up here involved to, to questions of some form of political interference. Let's start there. Where is the crime, Ellie? So this is all based on the payment of hush money by Donald
2: Trump, to Stormy Daniels before the 2016 election. That's right, 2016, it goes back that far. Now, paying hush money is not a crime on its own. The crime under New York state law is falsifying a business record. And the theory here is they mischaracterize these payments as legal fees within the Trump organization. But that's just a misdemeanor, Julia. Nobody goes to prison. That's the less serious type of crime. The only way to make it a felony is if you can tie the falsification of records to some other crime. And one of my big criticisms of this indictment is it doesn't specify what that other crime might be. Now, the D.A. sort of mentioned a few potential crimes in his remarks, but that's not sufficient. The purpose of an indictment is to give notice to the defendant. Here's what you're charged with. Here's what you're defending yourself against. And I think there's a legitimate question as to whether this conduct is serious enough to merit the first ever charge against the former president.
1: When will that become clear? Because surely you can't keep it quiet for for that much longer.
2: So the defense lawyers will surely go into court when they make their motions. You just put the timetable up there and say, we need to know we're entitled to what's called the bill of particulars, meaning you have to lay out exactly what the theory is here. Frankly, the D.A. should have done that right off the bat. And the failure to, to do so is confounding and I think not a good indicator.
1: Also confounding the timeline. Is it normal to wait for the first in-person hearing in so many months? We're talking December. And then if it does end up going to court, we're talking smack bang in the sort of midst of peak political negotiations where Trump could be the presumptive nominee for for the Republican Party. It's really messy.
2: It's not at all normal to have the first in-person appearance eight months out. I've never had a first appearance that far out. Now, I understand there are complications here in moving Donald Trump around. He caused gridlock in some parts of New York City yesterday. But still, eight months out is an incredibly long time. And if you do the math here, the political calendar comes into play, because if they're in court for the next time in December, they're not going to set a trial for a month later. Any any lawyer is going to demand and be entitled to at least three or four months. Now, are we really going to try this case, a criminal trial, in the middle of 2024, when Donald Trump will be in the middle of primary and debates and the convention coming up. I'm not sure that a judge would even agree to try it then. And this is a problem with all the pending Trump cases, which is they've let so much time pass by that now they're on a collision course with the political calendar.
1: I was going to ask actually beyond that and just to get your your gut feeling on this. I mean, the burden of proof lies with the prosecutors. If he turned around and said, look, I I made these payments because I simply didn't want my family hurt. I didn't want my wife to know. Does a judge go, you know what? I'm not, we're not going to hear this in court. It doesn't hold up.
2: So that would be an issue ultimately for a jury to decide. And you raise a really important point here is in the United States, the prosecution bears the burden beyond a reasonable doubt. And so people have said, well, who would the jury more likely believe? Michael Cohen, who's going to be the star witness for the prosecution or Donald Trump? That's not the right way to think about this. First of all, no defendant ever has to prove anything. A defendant can just sit back and say the prosecution hasn't met the burden. It's not 50-50 The prosecution has to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, unanimously. You need all 12 jurors. So if one juror out of 12 says, I'm not quite sure about this, you're not going
1: to get a conviction. Yeah, but you also raise a really important point, which is the time has passed. The the amount of time that's passed for all of the brewing investigations, potential charges, and, of course, this one. Um, Ali, great to chat to you. Get your wisdom. Thanks, Julie. Thank you. All right. OK, still to come. Some Fox News' biggest names are set to take the stand in a billion-dollar defamation case. The details after this. Welcome back to First Move. Let's take a look at where U.S. stocks are opening up this morning. And we're a touch lower for the Nasdaq and the S&P 500, though the Dow Jones, at least for now, bucking the trend. What investors are pouring over this morning, at least in the United States, is latest private sector employers jobs data. uh, Those employers added just 145,000 jobs last month. That actually missed Wall Street's estimates, according to the payroll firm ADP. Of course, this data was collected during the banking sector instability, so that might have played into some of the cautiousness that we saw in that data. It's a case of waiting for the next one. In the meantime, shares of Johnson & Johnson rising after it proposed a $9 billion settlement over claims that its talcum powder products caused cancer. No admission of guilt was made, but that payment will be made over 25 years through a Johnson & Johnson subsidiary that has now filed for bankruptcy. Johnson & Johnson itself will continue to operate as usual. And lawyers for the plaintiffs say they support the plan. In the meantime, several Fox News hosts will be called to testify in Dominion Voting System's defamation trial against the network. Dominion is suing Fox for $1.6 billion, claiming the network pushed various pro-Trump conspiracy theories about the election technology company. Fox said Tuesday it would call Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity and other high-profile hosts and executives as part of its defence. Joining us to discuss this is Oliver Darcy. Oliver, that's um, convenient, let's say, because Dominion also wanted to speak to them too. But where they're not making progress, it seems, on their desire to call Rupert Murdoch himself and Lachlan, his son, to the stand, what do you make of uh, the presentation of these hosts and what likely it means?
5: Well, I think this is going to be a pretty agonizing trial for Fox News, and that's because you are expected to see at this point in time some of the highest profile stars, like the people you mentioned, Sean Hannity, Maria Bartiromo, Tucker Carlson, Brett Baer. uh, Those people testify at this trial, and they're going to be asked about what they knew about Trump's election lies, did they believe them, and what they broadcast on there and what the network broadcasts on there. And we know from the private messages, from the private emails, that People at Fox News, the executives, the hosts, they did not believe Trump's delusional election lies in the aftermath of the 2020 election. However, they allowed those lies to take hold on the network. And so it's going to be very uncomfortable for Fox uh, as a network to have to endure weeks of this kind of testimony at a trial. Uh, In terms of Rupert Murdoch and Lachlan Murdoch, uh, obviously Fox does not want them testifying but the judge in the case presiding over the case he has indicated that he might compel them to testify he has said that Rupert Murdoch is a very key figure at Fox and that he likes having live witnesses in court and when Fox tried to suggest it might be inconvenient for the 92 year old uh, Fox chairman to travel to Delaware For the case, the judge pointed out that he recently got engaged. Uh, Now he's not engaged, but he recently did get engaged. And he has said that he likes to travel between his residences across the world. So the judge not buying that excuse, likely, uh, I would say, that he is compelled to testify. And so it's really shaping up to be a very high-wattage
1: trial in Wilmington, Delaware, uh, set later for this month. Now you've done it. What about the disengagement? Do we have any details on, on what happened there? I believe that was set to be his fifth marriage.
5: That was set to be his fifth marriage, and they just announced it, like, a couple weeks ago uh, in the New York Post via a gossip column from Cindy Adams. Uh, But a source told me yesterday that the engagement has been called off, so this media wedding of the summer is going to be no more. Unclear exactly what happened there, but like you said, was supposed to be his fifth marriage. And Murdoch at the time had said he hoped it was his last marriage because, uh, you know, he's uh, 92 years old. Yes,
1: <laughs> no comment. <laughs> I <Oliver does he? laughs> Thank you so much for that. We wish them both well. Thank you. OK, I've got a moving story for you after the break. Lamborghini's potent mix of a V12 engine and not one, but three electric motors were live at the New York Auto Show with the CEO. Welcome back to First Move. Just take a listen to a new twist on this supercar sound. Wow, the latest offering from Lamborghini may sound like pure petrol power, but under the hood is a potent mix. This new model is a plug-in electric car with three motors and a v12 engine it's called the Revuelto, which means mixed up in spanish and that sums up the combination quite nicely there's apparently and we'll check the facts an 18-month wait now for new lamborghinis and after a record year for sales in 2022 the firm's ceo says the company is in the best shape ever Joining us now, Stefan Winkelmann. He joins us from the Lamborghini Lounge at the New York International Auto Show. Stefan, fantastic to have you on the show. Let's talk about that new hybrid car because it does feel like a truly pivotal moment, I think, for the brand.
10: Yes, it's the beginning of a new era, actually. It's the first uh, plug-in hybrid car ever built in Lamborghini. We will hybridize all of our lineup in the next 24 months. And uh, the Revolto, the Lamborghini Revuelto, which we presented as a world premiere last week in Italy, is uh, the halo car. So it's the most important car and it has to keep uh, the dream alive uh, to possess a Lamborghini, to promise always more performance and now even more sustainability.
1: We'll get to the performance because clearly I'm very excited. But actually, the design of this is quite interesting to me too. Some things are the same, some things are very different. We've still got the the V12 engine, but the positioning is different. It points towards the back to make space for the three electric batteries. Just talk to me about this because the weight distribution clearly you've maintained, and that's very important for performance.
10: Right. You know the 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 classic layout of a Lamborghini was always the gearbox in the middle and the longitudinal engine in the back. Now we have the battery system in the middle, so between uh, the the driver and the passenger. Then we, we turn the engine, which is a complete new B12 engine, by 180 degrees, and we have the clutch in the back. And then, as you said, we have three, three electric motors, two in the front and one in the back, so also to assure that we can always drive uh, in a permanent four-wheel drive system. And this is uh, very positive for a car uh, like Lamborghini, because it's part of our heritage, the four-wheel drive system.
1: And particularly when you're going speeds that we can see in that video as well for uh, cornering in particular. Um, so we talked about the weight distribution between front and back, but it has to be a heavier car if we're talking three electric vehicle batteries. Just talk to me about um, the weight saving that you've managed to achieve on the, on the V12 engine. And overall, compared to previous cars, how much heavier is this?
10: The car is heavier, uh, also in comparison to the Aventador Ultimate. We saved uh, um, weight on the engine and uh, on uh, all the system, which is uh, made out of of carbon fiber. So our uh, car is weighting less in these terms, but in total, together with the batteries, is heavier. The big advantage is that the power to weight ratio is the best ever, because the super sports cars I uh, yes, about acceleration, about top speed. But the most important thing for us is the, how emotional the car is getting in the corner, out of the corner, so at the end of the day, what you can achieve uh, doing uh, a lap in a lap time. And this is something which this car um, is very good to do, uh, and it's easy to handle, and it's very fast uh, in every moment.
1: I was about to ask you that. Talk to us about speed.
10: The speed, what we, we have an acceleration about? of two... Yeah, go on. Sorry, no, you, you go ahead.
1: No, no, please, you're you getting to the exciting part, the top
10: speed, yeah, tell okay. me. <laughs> no, wait, the, the exciting part is the, the acceleration from zero to 62 is just uh, 2.5 seconds. Uh, the top speed is 217 uh, miles per hour. And uh, this is something which is very important uh, But at the end of the day, it's how you can express, how you can enjoy this power. So with the add-on of the battery system, you really have a boost. You have the opportunity to drive smooth, but also to accelerate and to be very handling-oriented in every moment. Because we have more than a 1,000 horsepower combined uh, with the battery. And this is something which uh, is uh, the best ever had in a Lamborghini so far.
1: Yeah, I mean I think a lot of people now will be shouting what about the price? What's going to be the price differential between as you mentioned the Aventador, I mean that the base on that $500,000 approximately how much more expensive is is this going to be? Can you give us a hint?
10: We are speaking uh, with the Revuelto uh, about a price which is uh, starting from 600,000. Mm. Um all the people will put a lot of options and individualization side, so it would be um, even more expensive. But at the end of the day, uh, the individualization is something which is very important. And we already have now um, sold uh, the production of the next uh, 24 months. So this is a very good uh, for Lamborghini. And this means that even if very few people have seen the car uh, so far, uh, the trust in the brand and the, in the technology It's very high.
1: I mean, as I was sort of shaking down my piggy bank, reading about this and realizing that I needed a vault actually more, um, I'd read that, (laughs) that the unofficial order book is two years. So you're confirming that now. So it could actually be longer than that when people actually see it. Because as you said, very few people I'm sure have even seen this or even had the ability to to drive one and test it out.
10: Right, test it out. Nobody so far because we're still... Uh, uh, starting the production and the second, or we will start production in the second half of the year, and we will have the first deliveries at the end uh, of the year 2023. But uh, the trust, and we are opening up now the system this week for the orders. Uh, but we know from our our partners, our dealers, that they have already uh, covered the the next 24 months. And as you said, I'm sure about the fact that once uh, everybody has seen the car and is more familiar uh we will have a lot of uh, orders on top of what we have already like uh, right now
1: clearly i'm far too excited about this so we should talk about the broader business um you did have a record year last year the us market was was the largest market for you if we're talking about demand particularly for hybrid and as you push on to to ev um is the united states still expected to be the biggest Market for this? Where do you see the demand really coming in? Is it Europe? Is it Asia? Men versus women? What can you tell me?
10: Uh, for sure, the, the the U.S. market is the biggest by far. The second one is the Chinese market. Mm. And here for the U.S., we are speaking that it's three times bigger than our second market. Even if we are uh, speaking about hybridization, uh, there will be no uh, difference in the in the ranking of. Uh, uh, the big markets, I'm sure about that, with the, the, the reception of the hybridization is very, very positive. And also in terms of uh, our strategy, as I said before, we will hybridize all of our lineup by the end of 2024. And we will have our first full electric uh, Lamborghini uh, starting from 2028. It has to be a car which is more daily driver for the super sports cars like the Revuelto and uh, the Huracan, um, we are thinking that maybe also um, after 2030, there's still an opportunity uh, for hybrid cars. It depends a bit uh, uh, on the rules which are coming up in terms of uh, uh, homologation, but also uh, in terms of sustainability. What we need uh, is a worldwide, uh, um, let's say, equal um, system, which is enabling us to have the same cars registered all, Uh, over the globe. This is important for a company like ours, which is uh, selling uh, um, low volumes. And so we need to have uh, a global distribution.
1: So Um, harmonization
10: is key for us.
1: Makes perfect sense to me. Um, My team are asking, because they were hoping to see another car behind you, but we can see what looks like handkerchiefs. Are they potential colors of cars? Because I'm seeing that yellow one over your left shoulder and it would fit perfectly with with my outfit today. Is that <laughs> colors? And do we have to come and see, to see more cars? Uh,
10: you should But the, the, the colors behind me are um, leather samples uh, oh. for the interior. For the <laughs> exterior, we have uh, 400 different uh, colors you can uh, choose upon, so there is a, a huge variety. And the Lamborghini is, uh, let's say, the car manufacturer which is celebrating uh, the exterior and also the, the interior more than a, any other super sports car company.
1: Fantastic. So I'm not ruling out that yellow one now. I just have to uh, find a vault to rob joke. Stefan, great to, great to have you with us. Stefan Winkelmann Thank there, you. the CEO of Lamborghini. Great to chat to you, sir, as always. All right, coming up here on First Move, a possible retirement? What Tiger Woods is saying about his future just ahead of the Masters tournament? That's next. Welcome back to First Move. He's seen and done it all, but Tiger Woods knows his journey at the top level of golf might be nearing an end. He's hinted that this year's Masters could be his last when asked by our Don Riddell. Just take a listen to his answer.
4: When you're playing this course, does it ever cross your mind this could be the last time? Yes,
9: it has. Um, I, I didn't know, I mean, last year was kind of a. Um, didn't know if I was, I was gonna play again at that time. Uh, for some reason, everything kind of came together. I kind of pushed it a little bit and I was able to make the cut, which was nice. And uh, yeah, I, I don't know how many more I have in me.
1: And Don joins us now from Augusta, Georgia. Don, we've all been in one of those press conferences where someone asks a question and the answer surprises everybody and suddenly you can, you can hear a pin drop. That was a, a great question. Also a very human response from Tiger.
4: Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're right. You ask these questions and you don't quite know what the response is going to be. I left that press conference room uh, yesterday and uh, that clip quickly went viral. And I think it really captured everybody's imagination. and it was a very human response and I think there was, there was an element of sadness and resignation in there as well. Um, this is his 25th Masters, he's won it five times, his first in 97 was extraordinary, his last in 2019 uh, coming so long after his previous major win was just remarkable uh, and of course his fans think he can keep going and doing it again and again and again but we all know what he's been up against most notably that dreadful car accident two years ago where he could have lost his leg so he he says that success now to him isn't contending and winning it's just being able to play the game like that that's a win for him but how many more times is he going to be able to come back we don't know Uh, he did talk about the fact that his game is better than it was this time last year he says his endurance is better he's aching more though the people that have been around him and playing in the practice rounds with him say that he is looking great the question remains can he hack it over four rounds here it's a very very hilly course he's got to walk it all can his body uh, you know do that we will see but you know, there remains a great deal of excitement around Tiger Woods uh, every time he's at a golf course.
1: Yeah, there's some magic expectation, oh, and it was a very different tone, I think, from him compared to what we saw a year ago when he came back. And there was still that expectation of winning. Mm-hmm. Um, so fascinating to, to to hear from him there. Um, but there's sort of a competition within a competition yeah. too. Let's talk about that as well because this marks the first time you've got PGA Tour golfers facing off against Live golf series players as well what's that going to mean
4: yeah so i mean in the majors last summer all the talk was is live happening who's going to live how does everybody feel about that and then it did happen and a lot of top golfers did leave so this is the first major where they've all been back together so there's 18 rebel golfers in this field six of them are previous champions so they were all at the masters dinner last year and since live began Some pretty unpleasant things have been said, Uh, exchanges on social media, lawsuits have been flying around between uh, the tours. Uh, So, you know, I think we expected a a level of animosity when they all got back here together this year. But so far, that doesn't seem to be the case. The players from both sides have been speaking to the media, and they all say, look, you know, most of them are just our mates. Like, we're kind of happy to see them again. Not all of them are our mates, like, that point has been made clear. Uh, But a lot of them just seem to be happy to be back together again. The live golfers have said they would love it if one of them could win because I think that would validate their tour. We will see if that happens. But certainly on Sunday afternoon, if a liver and a PGA Tour player are in contention, that would be fascinating. Spicy.
1: (laughs) We'll see. Don, great to have you with us and well done once again. All right. And that's it for the show. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next and I'll see you tomorrow.